Our text this evening is from Ephesians. Uh, I'm going to be working primarily in verses 18 and 19, uh, but we'll get a little context by reading the whole section. So we'll be reading Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and then focusing on verses 18 and 19. So Ephesians 1, 15, Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Sends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let us pray. O Lord, you have given us your word, sure and certain. It is powerful, O Lord, and full of majesty and grace. Help us to understand it tonight with your uh, kindness through your spirit. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation to that end. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as you could tell from the reading of the larger passage, Paul is telling the audience of his prayers on their behalf. And what is remarkable about this prayer report, as it were. Paul is an apostle, and he can't help but teaching them the things that he is praying that they would know. (laughs) So I want you to know these things, so here it is, (laughs) and I will teach you about these things. So he prays that they will um, grow in grace, and particularly the eyes of their heart would be enlightened for certain things, and then he tells them exactly what it is that their heart should be enlightened about, and that's what we're at today. So he has uh, done this with other people in his other letters. He, t- he reminds them he's praying for them. It's also a good reminder that we pray for one another and for the Church of Christ, uh, so it's a good example of that. Uh, and here he's praying for wisdom and insight, Insight into things that we have to know in the course of our pilgrimage. These are things that uh, are uh, foundational for our faith and uh, quite striking in the imagery that he paints when he talks about them. Now, it begins by saying he he wants the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. And this is a very vivid image, isn't it? That our hearts would have eyes. Uh, So it's a metaphor that uh, 
that our, our heart would understand things, that we would see things with our heart, as it were. So this is down deep in our souls. This is, this is something that we hold most dear uh, and should grow in things we hold most dear, things our hearts are attached to. Uh, and our hearts need to be enlightened to understand certain basic things about the Lord. Um, and so it's a, a very striking imagery of perception, that we would perceive certain things of what God has done on our behalf, and that we would have light for that. Now, we take light for granted in our world. Uh, I, you know, having just returned to where we lived for 40 years, uh, I was reminded when I saw Mount Palomar, how it looks like a bald uh, Oregon coast range. <laughs> it's, Mount Palomar is actually a long ridge, uh, and it has a little peak on it, very almost imperceptible, and on this peak is an observatory uh, from the 1930s, and they cut a rode up there and took the mirror up there. It's a, very, it's a fascinating thing. If you actually go there, I do recommend it. It's a lot of fun to go up there and take a tour of the observatory. It's still an active observatory, but you can take a tour and it has history and you, you can find out all about it. Um, but it, it was a interesting thing because at the time in the 1930s when they made this observatory on this ridgeline, this peak, there weren't 20 million people living all around with lights on <laughs> at night. Uh, so now they have a lot of light, uh, what's it called, light pollution uh, in the area, so it's not as effective as an observatory because just surrounded by huge metropolitan areas, both to the north and the south. Uh, and there's light pollution. Well, in Paul's day, you didn't have light pollution. Cities might have torches at night uh, on, on the streets. Those were the street lamps they had. Um, but inside your house, you basically had a lamp. And a lamp is a small, usually clay vessel with an opening, and you light the oil in the opening. And you get basically, think, one candle flame for each lamp. So you'd have to have a bunch of them to get any serious light in your room, and you're not really getting any street lights or city lights through your windows. Uh, any light that comes in through the windows from the stars and the moon, um, which can be quite bright, but if, the, if it's cloudy and the moon is gone, it's dark. It's really dark. I mean, dark, dark. Darker than probably you've ever experienced. Uh, and that's Paul's world. So when he says that your hearts might be enlightened, he wants a torch to be lit in your heart so that you can now see clearly. You can go outside and see with this bright light illuminating you. Uh, this, is, this is what he's praying for, that the Lord would lighten our hearts. And what's interesting is, God has dispelled the darkness in our hearts to begin with. So Paul is talking to Christians, and he knows that God has already dispelled the darkness of unbelief and sin from the hearts of these people. 
but he wants that to continue. This is the continuing growth in God's grace that we as Christians need to experience. And Paul is praying to that end. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Glory is often portrayed as this brilliant, uh, shining glory from the face of the Lord and all around God. This emanating light. This is the glory of God. And he's already shown this light in our hearts. But now Paul is praying even more uh, we may experience the light of God's glory in our hearts so that we can see we wouldn't be in darkness. We can walk with insight into the Lord's will for us and all the provision he's made for us. He says in Ephesians 5, 8, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So he doesn't doubt that they have light. He simply wants that to grow so that they would be even more assured and confident of the Lord's provision for them. This is really important for us, that we grow in our understanding of God and his work on our behalf. What he has done in, uh, in our lives and for us in Christ Jesus, and then who we are in him. You see, this whole business of light is quite striking for Paul. There was actually a scholar who made, um, basically made his name with this proposition, and I, but I think it's very compelling. Uh, he said that the light that Jesus shone on Paul in the book of Acts at his conversion, you'll recall that Paul is on the way to Damascus, and this bright light shone over him, and you know, the people accompanying him had no idea what was going on, and it was this bright light that eventually blinded Paul, uh, and it was the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the scholars made the point that this experience made a big impression on Paul, and it comes out, it kind of bubbles out when he talks about being enlightened. Because this, this was a physical a uh, real experience that he had that made a huge impact on his Christian walk after that. He sees the Lord as light and glorious and powerful uh, from this experience that he had, and he wants us to share in that experience. So the enlightenment that Paul wants us to have takes uh, three forms here. Now, Paul makes it easy for us in that he repeats the opening word three times, uh, and that is uh, a way for him to organize what he says. So it's, it's like a list. So he gives us three things that he wants us to particularly be enlightened about, and he uses the same word three times to kind of mark the opening of this. But what's interesting, and you may even note it in translation here, uh, it's called a tricolon crescendo. That's a term I learned in 1978, and I remembered it. Can you believe it? Uh, <laughs> I still remember learning that term, and this is what it is. I see it here. Oh, yeah, tricolon crescendo. All that means is a three-part buildup so that each portion gets bigger and bigger. Starts small, gets medium, and then big. 
And that's what we have here in our text. Uh, this is verses 18 and 19. Now, the word that opens this is translated what? Okay? So let's look at this. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what, okay, there's our word, what is the hope to which he's called you? Not very long. Now it gets bigger. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's bigger. And then it gets really big. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus? And it just goes on. I mean, this gets really big now uh, into areas actually we're going to put off until next time. But I want you to see that what. Now what makes this uh, even a little clearer is it opens with what, a, what is the hope? And the second one is translated what are the riches? But it's actually a singular word, and you can translate that to make it singular. What is the wealth? So if you want to make it parallel and make it look closer to how it does in the original, you understand it as what is the hope? What is the wealth? And that's, that's how that... This is part of why it's so striking in the original. You can see the parallelism of the words. They... They repeat, uh, and this, this is uh, not the only place. It's not the only place Paul does this. It's not the only place this is found in ancient literature. This is actually fairly common uh, and quite striking. So the first one, we're going to talk about each one of these. The first one is hope. He wants us to know what is the hope uh, to which he has called you. Now, our translation has... Uh, has determined for us what this means. You could, you could understand the original as saying, the hope of his calling. And sometimes it's translated that way. The hope of his calling. And what our tra translators have done is interpreted to say, the hope to which he has called you. And what that means is, now hope is not our hoping, but the thing we hope for. That's actually two things, right? I hope for something. I have hope for something. What is it you hope for? Well, my hope is this, and that's the thing I hope for. So we use hope the same way as Paul does. It has two different possible meanings. Now, I think our translators have done a good job. I agree with them. Uh, that's a very helpful understanding. Uh, so that Paul wants us to know the hope to which we have been called. So we have been summoned by God. God has sent out a decree, and he, he has sent out a decree, and he has told people, you must come. You have an invitation. It's a royal invitation with a lot of trumpets surrounding it and people marching into your house and saying, you must come. <laughs> and what he has called you to is hope. <laughs> it's not a bad thing at all. He has called you to hope. He has called you to life eternal, to have hope in this hopeless world. That is what he summoned you to. He has called you into a hope. And, and Paul wants your eyes to be, your, your heart to be illumined to what that hope is. 
And he's going to tell us a little bit more about that. But that's what he's taught. That's what he is talking about. Later in Ephesians 4, verse 4, just as also you were called to the one hope from your calling. You were called to one hope from your calling. So we all have the one hope. And this is chapter 4 of Ephesians, which you may know says, for there's one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father over all, one hope. Uh, we all have this same hope. And it's all together. We as a community share this hope. And it is a glorious thing uh, extended to all of us. No one is left out. We all have an equal share in this glorious hope to which he has called us. Well, now we have a second thing. So the first is, what is the hope? Now, in, later in verse 8, what is the wealth? Now, our translators have made a de decision here, and there are a couple of ways to put this. As, as I mentioned, they say, what are the riches? There's nothing wrong with that. It's just uh, in original, it's singular. It's just easier to see the parallelism if you say, what is the wealth? And if you were to render this kind of woodenly, it would be, the, what are the riches, or, or what is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance? So you have three nouns, wealth, glory, inheritance. What is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance? And this is a place where it is possible to take glory here as modifying one of the other words. If you want to see, if you want to see this, this is my favorite illustration. I'm sorry I've, I've done it before, but it, it was just so puzzling to me as a young Christian and striking to learn about this, so I... It's very memorable to me personally. Uh, I remember reading about uh, one of the Psalms uh, as a very young Christian and talked about the mountain of his holiness. And I thought, what in the world is that? You know, we, we approach God to the mountain of his holiness. I, did, I had no idea what that would mean. Well, it turns out it just means his holy mountain. <laughs> so you take a noun, holiness, and it modifies one of the other nouns when it has a quality to it. And that's what we have here, glorious inheritance. Now, it is possible to attach glory here to the wealth. You could render this as the glorious wealth of his inheritance. I don't think that really matters. I think you get, in the end of the day, the, the inheritance is glorious and wealthy, <laughs> rich and abundant. Uh, and you see, brothers and sisters, this is our hope. It's an inheritance that he has reserved for us in heaven that we have. It's the kingdom of God. It's this kingdom that the Father has prepared for us that we hear about in Matthew 25. Uh, and it is the kingdom of God. That is our inheritance, the new creation, glorious uh, life eternal, and a place fit for us in resurrection glory. That's what he has reserved for us as our wealthy, glorious inheritance. Now, one thing that is important to note here, our translation says, the glorious inheritance in the saints. 
I think you really want to read that among the saints. Uh, This is a possible rendering, and I do think that's better. And here's why. If, If you say in the saints, it sounds like the inheritance is God's own inheritance. He inherits us as his inheritance in the saints. The saints are his inheritance. Now, that's actually said uh, more or less earlier in Ephesians 1. We are his prized possession. He, 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 he owns us, as it were, as his own people. We are his own prized private reserve. The great king and uh, creator has reserved for his own pleasure you. You are his own prized possession. And he has a place in his treasury for you to be put on display uh, forever in great glory. That, that's what the Lord is telling us earlier in Ephesians. But I don't think that's what's happening here. This is actually an idiom from the Old Testament. It's our inheritance among the saints. It just means our inheritance along with all the saints. So it's our inheritance. It's this new creation glory that we inherit all together in the church now, along with the saints who've gone before from the beginning, Adam and Eve, all the way through the Old Testament, and all the saints there, and all the New Testament saints, and all the saints for the last 2,000 years that the church has existed across the world. We all inherit together, and that's our inheritance together with the saints, uh, or among the saints. This is uh, easy to show, and I do think that's how we should take that. Uh, So if you think about what is the hope to which he's called us, it's this glorious inheritance. This is our hope, the substance of it. And we've already talked about the inheritance a little bit earlier in Ephesians 1, but here we're going to get into it more and more. Now, we're, we're faced now with the last uh, element of the three. So we have hope and wealth, and now we have what is the immeasurable greatness? I like to render that as superabundant magnitude. Now, I, one of the things that I have worked on uh, that is uh, a really important um, process for interpreting the scripture it, It comes up when you're looking at a word and you're saying to yourself, you know, a Greek word, and you're looking at it and saying, I don't think that's very common. Why did did he use that word? Then you start researching it, and then you say, well, what other words are there he could have used? Now, the problem with studying ancient Greek is you don't speak it or think it. So, I can read ancient Greek, some passages quite well, but I don't think in it usually. I can sometimes read a text after nearly 50 years of studying Greek. <laughs> yes, I did say nearly 50 years, shocking to me. Uh, but 
I can sometimes look at it and not convert it to English, but not very often. Usually it's not that process. Now here's a problem with that. You, you have to know the other words that are possible. And it's not easy to get that. You basically experience. You start thinking about it. You start basically mentally keeping track of terms that mean that. Now here's why I'm bringing this up. Paul helps us here. He basically uses all the words for power possible in Greek. <laughs> here they are. If I want to know words for power, I just go right here. <laughs> this is really magnificent. He basically just, just throws all the words for power and then adds this notion of superabundant magnitude of his power. And so here, here are the words in verse 9. What is the superabundant magnitude of his power toward us, I believe, according to the working or effectiveness, that's a power word, of his great might, his great strength. Uh, and then he uses a couple of other words as he goes along. This is just uh, lavishing upon us the power of the Lord toward us. And notice what he says. I want you to know, I want the eyes of your heart to understand the power of God unleashed on you in Christ Jesus. The superabundant magnitude of his power. It's a supernova. That's what happened on the cross and resurrection of our Lord. This, and it was unleashed on us. That's what Paul is saying, and he wants us to understand that. So if we're going to understand that, we're going to have to do it next week. And I, it's only because there's just so much in the next verse, verse 20, that I want to look at that, focus on that. But I wanted you to see where we're going. Because this is, this is the magnificent working of God toward you. And brothers and sisters, here's something I want you to reflect on. If you were here this morning, I, you know, most of you were, all of you were, you heard about the challenge of professing the Lord in the face of all the opposition that we face. You have the power of God unleashed on you to stand firm in the evil day. Your inheritance is the God who created the sun and the moon and all the stars. That's, that's who we're talking about here. And our Lord Jesus Christ, all things were made through the Son. He's the one who became incarnate and the one speaking to us in that text. The one speaking to us in that text made the sun and the moon and the stars. <laughs> all things were made through him. So that's who we're dealing with here. He has all power to protect you and to preserve you that even if you die, it is not lost to you. It is only gained through his power and his inheritance reserved for you. That is our hope. Let's pray. It is good, our Lord, to reflect upon these wonderful things, overwhelming, overwhelmingly wonderful things. You've given us so many good things. You've given us this word, which is robust and strong and gives us hope. Give us hope, O Lord. Increase our hope 
our love for you, our confidence in you, and our understanding of what all you provide for us in Christ Jesus. That we may glorify you even more in our lives and our profession of faith. 